This song is not a rebel song. Shall we play a game? I am Sammy Daddy. Many students were killed. Feel right now. I'm very angry. He was rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. Naughty, naughty. We like the party. Automobile. Oh, Rick, to think that I may never see you again. I think you did it on purpose because you know I've got a runny bottom. I'm Kurt Loder. This is MTV News. Justin, Justin. But this is Miami, pal. I'm not going Let's have a Play-Doh party. Now show me wax on, wax off. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another edition of Fluorescent Decade on a Hill, our 1980s glance back time machine. Though it wasn't my initial intention. On this episode, we're going to talk a lot about racism, especially in Chicago, USA, and in the country of South Africa. It's difficult to say whether racism was better or worse in the 1980s compared to other periods, including our own present time. It's one of those sometimes subjective perceptions, depending on the place you're at and the person you're talking to. Our swerving into this topic kicked off when DJ Jackpuck and I were talking generally about Chicago in the 1980s, and the town's ugly reality came up. I had the urban life in Chicago. A force police brutality. I mean, it was heavy there. It was still was heavy. Really? Oh yeah. Um, Who was the mayor of Chicago then? Daly, and he stayed mayor for a long time. At first, it was Harold Washington. Uh, before him, it, it was uh, Burns. That was her name. She was a blonde, and it used to be this guy. <laughs> it's funny. He used to be called Spider Dan. <laughs> And he was dressed up like Spider-Man, and he would climb the buildings oh, of Chicago, yeah. Yeah. and they was Spider-Dan. And so she took a fire hose and hit him with it. So, you know, <laughs> we knew it was racism there when Mayor Harold Washington was the first black mayor of Chicago. And that's why I threw his name up, uh, Harold Washington. Everybody was, like, really throwing out, you know, like you said, a can of worms. They was really pouring out in front of him because he was the first black mayor of Chicago. Mm-hmm. He died in office. You know, and it's funny because Chicago is a very Democrat town. I mean, there's... It's Democratic, but it's also corrupted, man. Yeah. It has so much corruption. Well, man. the stereotype is that all Democrats are just peace and love and all the races holding hands and singing Kumbaya. But, I mean, who was the, the mayor during the 68 Democratic... His name was Day, uh, uh, Mayor Daly. The father of... The father. And he, he broke a record because he stayed the mayor for a long right. time. I think close to 30 years. But they... They even look back now and think he was near fascist the way he used the police to crack heads and. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's the demographic is, is, is quite different today, right. but the demographic was totally different um, in the eighties. It was certain areas that was sectioned off that black people could not go. It's like the Irish was right here, uh, the Latinos right there, and the black people had to stay in a certain area and they couldn't travel certain places. And my sister, when we was together up there in the Midway, Illinois, she said Burbank, and Burbank is nice, man. Burbank, Illinois, just the name Burbank. Uh-huh. You think of Burbank, California. It's got the word bank in it. Yeah, you look at it, it has shopping centers in there, stuff like that. Look, similar to places like here in Nashville. It's nice. My sister told me, said, now in the 80s, we couldn't go here. We were not allowed here. Wow. She said, we couldn't even drive down here, we'll be stopped. 
and the officers would ask us, hey, you know, what's your business here? Uh, you don't belong here. Wow. And I don't think they do that now. Oh, of course not. <laughs> yeah. you know, they're not going to pull up. Police officers not going to pull up to you and say, so what's your business here? You don't belong here, you know. <laughs> past hours, you need to so go so, back. So some things were worse in that way. Some things were worse that way. Uh, my dad, even though he worked out there, but that's the only thing you can do. You can work there, but you couldn't hang out there. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, that's how it was there in Chicago, Illinois. It was so sectioned off and everything. And so when I was up there, we still just saw some black people here, speckled here and speckled there. And I asked one of the ladies at McDonald's, said, so where do black people hang out? <laughs> And she said, well, the, that's an easy one. The black people, we work here in this area, Burbank, Ridgeway, Illinois, Chicago Ridge, Illinois. But we, we hang out downtown. That's our hangout spot. If you want to go party, we go downtown Chicago. I said, oh, and she was right. When we went downtown Chicago, black people was everywhere. You know, and we like, black people. You know, the thing about it, uh, as far as like, like I DJed here in, it's in Murfreesboro. It's like going towards Woodbury. Mm -hmm. And when I went out there, you know, it's a nice place, place to DJ and uh, do wedding receptions and stuff like that. When I got there, I didn't see no black people. And this is, has nothing to do with black, white, blue, green. If you are alien and you're purple and you go to uh, a distant planet, and you don't see anybody that looks like you, you're going to get kind of paranoid. You mean sure. like, oh, you know, or concerned that, hey, it's no one that looks like me, mm -hmm. you know, that I can uh, talk to or have conversations with. So that's what it was like there. Kelly and I, we was like, we don't see no black people out here. But you still, when you get out there, when you start setting the equipment, the white people come around. Hello, how you doing today? It's hot, isn't it? Like, it sure is. Well, you know, if it gets too hot, let us know. We'll bring some water out there for you and everything. Or hopefully if it rains, we can come inside and, and set up the equipment. Because we don't want your equipment to get wet because it's some expensive stuff. Mm -hmm. You see, even if they didn't like me, they were still putting on the show. Like, hey, you're here, you know, conduct business. And, hey, we're going to treat you with respect. They was even carrying all, you know, conversations and clowning around. Had a good time. Now, in Illinois, you can't do that. They just won't talk to you at all. Yeah, you know. They're like, that's your equipment. Okay, let me know if you need some assistance. And then they leave before you can say, yeah, I need your assistance. Yeah, you know. And it's, it's just different. remember that as a music fan, a lot of artists I was listening to back in the 80s were all of a sudden preaching against South Africa's practice of apartheid, the government instituting segregation and discrimination against the black population by the white minority government. The reality of the problem was more complicated than the three or four minute songs could explain. So first, I asked an American family, we'll call Uncle Jim and Cousin Jay, that in the 1980s and 90s lived in Johannesburg, among other areas in Southern Africa. What was their perception of what was going on during that time? Apartheid was still on in the 80s when we went there. Well, we saw like 
restrooms that said NE restroom non-European which means everybody that's not white uses these restrooms Wow was that kind of a shock well it was just the way life was you, you know you didn't really think about it too much uh -huh. uh, did you see any like bad things besides the separation and stuff there was also fighting going on we didn't we didn't get in on the fighting you didn't get in on it <laughs> oh man didn't you missed out the fighting yeah but uh, we would go into the, the black township sometimes we'd have to notify our uh, people that we were coming in and they would uh, make sure that it was safe for us because sometimes if they were having having a funeral or some kind of event sometimes they would tell us it's not safe to go in oh really would the South Africans differentiate between Americans and the Afrikaners and all that or no they wouldn't know any different until they hear you speak and then they say what part of America are you from uh, but they didn't hold you accountable for all the bad stuff that was going on no was your church segregated or yes it was yeah uh, we went to a black church in uh, Tembisa which is a, a township of Johannesburg sometimes we went to a white church in another uh, city so it was it was very much separate. You had white churches, colored churches, mm -hmm. black churches. So colored is and, different and, than black. And you had Indian church. Colored is mixed. Oh, like mulatto. Anything, anything that's mixed is called colored. There's a distinction between colored and black. And the Indians from India, you mean? Originally from India, but yeah. they've been there many generations in South oh. Africa and, mm -hmm. and Swaziland. But it was okay for you to go to a black church? Yeah. like in America it's a topic that they like to talk about more even though we're so much further removed from it of like you know how bad when things were extremely bad with like segregation and stuff which obviously you know was really big you know and, and there was a movement against that mainly in the 60s and whatnot so that's so much further away from when it was happening in Africa which when you know in the 80s it was still going on in the 90s then that you know 93 is when you know Mandela got power and whatnot but so when we were growing up you know, that would have been around, you know, it was the early 90s. We just didn't talk about it, and it wasn't like an issue, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I guess, I feel like they get over it quicker. I remember coming here in 94, and they were talking about, like, race and segregation and stuff in school, and that was a really... From the 50s and 60s? Yeah, yeah, yeah it, here, and so that was a really the first time I even thought about race. Mm -hmm. but you, when you were growing up, like blacks and whites just got along, and, yeah. and so we were the minority. So we didn't talk about minorities like we do here, because we were the minority. <laughs> That's how much different it is, because you know it was the minority controlling the majority. Oh uh, yeah. You know, over there, it's, there's racism against each other, I mean, because there's so many different tribes and different things. It's not like all African people are the same. Africa is a ginormous continent, you know. Mm -hmm. So you know they could be just as racist against a white person as they could be against another group of you know, black people. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while tensions are raised amongst the, you know, extremes when something happens where like, you know, I, I read an article a while back where they're saying that they're having tensions because somebody in a speech said that, that all foreigners needed to go back where they came from. Yeah, the king of the Zulu. Yeah, he said they were uh, ticks on a dog and yeah. needed to be thrown in the fire. Yeah. That's why they started lighting kids on fire. We went to Swaziland in 1990 and that was really when apartheid started quickly falling apart right about that time mm -hmm. and um, 
in 94 was when they had the first election when all races could vote. And that was when Mandela was elected then. So about Mandela and his tribal uh, allegiances, so to speak, because in South Africa there's several different tribes and different races of Africans, right? Yeah, and you read the history books about the, uh, the Dutch settlers and, and the natives and all the fighting that they did. And of course, the Zulus were prominent, and the, the white Dutch, which became known as Afrikaners, those were the two primary groups. But there was also uh, the Sutus and the Tosas. And so actually, Mandela is, is a Tosa, and therefore the ANC is really controlled by that tribe and not by the Zulus. So you have an um, interesting uh, scenario that unfolds there because the different black tribes, uh, there's a lot of, in fact, there's more black-on-black -black killing and violence than there ever was black-on-white or white-on-black. During apartheid years? During apartheid, during the struggle, and even after the struggle. Is most of the killing and fighting, I, I can say, has been black-on-black -black and not black-on-white or white-on-black. So the ANC tends to help their own party more than the other tribes? Yeah, yeah the tribal thing runs very deep. So, the, how do you say that name? Koza. So the Koza, <laughs> they help the, their own first? For sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. The Soviets were arming a lot of like rebels to overthrow certain governments but particularly in the Congo and there was like a bunch of atrocities done with those weapons and things. I know that they apparently tried to sway some influence in South Africa as well. Do you remember much of that or? Yeah, the Russians and the Cubans both were helping arm the uh, rebel groups, especially in their struggles for independence. Mm -hmm. You were aware of it? Oh yeah. In here we weren't. They just made it out of a race struggle. In fact, Mandela and his party, the ANC, is really a, a communist party essentially. And they're still in power, even right. today in South Africa. And they brought all the promises of socialist utopia? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been quite a, a lot of work there on trying to redistribute wealth. And uh, that doesn't go very well, of course. Right. Not, not a very good idea. Good intentions, but... <laughs> I remember you know. talking to Irene not too long ago, who is a white South African that still lives there, and she was saying that they're trying to a socialized medicine program over there, somewhat like Obamacare or, mm -hmm. or whatever they have in you know, Canada. And she says she thinks it's even worse over there than it is here because there's a lot less wealth to go around. And if you're trying to spread it around, she's just saying it's even worse. So. Next, we talk extensively with Jones Kalunga, whom was born in Malawi, immigrated to Zimbabwe with his parents in the 1980s, and then in the early part of the new millennium moved to Johannesburg. He is a student and observer of history and gives us at least his understanding and memories of those troubled times, and ultimately how they still affect our world today some 25 years after the fact. What I want to ask you about is your understanding of South Africa and apartheid in the 80s. My opinion, the observations we made, okay, this is through media first of all second of all through constantly we were involved so the apartheid was not only unique to south africa it was it was also something that the whole region of southern africa was experiencing so from an early age we in the 80s were donating uh clothing we're doing all sorts of uh, fundraising for for the children that were 
we're told we're suffering in South Africa because of apartheid. So that was our the understanding that was indoctrinated us. So we, we, we thought, okay, there was a system that was oppressing black people and they were like really having the most terrible lives and whatnot. So that's how we, 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 we got to understand this. However, when I went into South Africa and actually started living there in the early 2000s, um, there was still some, what can I say, effects of apartheid. So you could see, you could see the system that was in, in, in place. You could feel it, you could understand what was going on. But now living and experiencing it, 20 years away from the 80s is far removed from, from reality, but some of these things tend to uh, carry forward in, in, in decades into the future uh, based on the fact that there was a system that was put in place by the regime, apartheid regime, uh, which was quite, quite elaborate and very strong and, and, and it, it shaped history and will shape the future of South Africa. So the first thing I noticed was that obviously apartheid was about segregating, putting sections of the country that were for the whites and certain sections for the blacks. And it all comes down to one thing, that way I said, it's, it's an economic move, first uh -huh. of all. And what um, would be the benefit e economically to separate people? The part of the regime realized, okay, they were the minority in terms of population, but they had a majority which was the workforce which they acquired. Uh -huh. So the segregation was around, okay, they had what they call townships. Mm -hmm. The townships were these low-cost, uh, high-densely populated uh, areas where black people would stay and migrate into the economically active uh, suburbs and towns, that's one of them being Johannesburg. So you'll find these townships were, were outside uh, Johannesburg and they'll provide labor for these economies. So the whites were okay with blacks doing certain jobs, mm -hmm. but other jobs they didn't want them doing, and, and hence yes. why they separated them. Then you go into the rural area. There's a big land grab, and the land grab was around arable land, which was then obviously, which dates back to earlier colonies, where the place was being colonized by the Dutch and the, and the English, where they would just pick up portions of land that were quite arable in terms of agriculture, and that's a backbone actually of, of South Africa in terms of providing food for, for the nation, but also um, resource-based. There was a lot of resources that were being discovered. Gold was the biggest one, a lot of coal deposits. So energy was, was no problem. So industrializing the place itself was, was easy. Uranium was another thing that was discovered. And then platinum also came in. Now that changed the whole landscape. Let's talk about Mandela. Mandela was part of the ANC, which is the African National Congress. It was, by the way, established way back, way before him, I think 1912 or something like that. And he was a lawyer. Before, I think, the apartheid system was put together. And then when it was actually implemented, that's when he became very active. He fought for black people, and, and really, he was very vocal, very charismatic, but he was not really the leader. He was the mouthpiece. So he was not the strategist. There's O.R. Tambo, one of the best leaders of the ANC. He was also a leader who was leaving from behind. So he was oh. not in the sense, no one would hear about O.R. Tambo. Now, did they get along? They did get along. I mean, the, 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 the way they coordinated around fighting the apartheid regime, you could see that there were people that understood the cause. They, they had a movement, mm -hmm. a revolutionary movement, which they all bought into and all participated equally. Mm -hmm. However, Mandela was strong in terms of, uh, as I said, his personality. He 
his way in terms of he was a lawyer and I mean he was also a boxer and his passion how he would put across his commitment to, to the cause to the movement but obviously things change in time I mean when he was incarcerated and the movement started taking its own shape and form outside him he was not ANC he was part of the ANC a lot of interest coming from external interest uh, I think at some point the party was struggling because they would find an identity and he did quite little in, in prison. He was he was not able to consult with people. So there was no way mm -hmm. he could. So there were other leaders that came up and, and there was a wife, Winnie Mandela. She carried on the movement. She was very instrumental in pressuring the government because all they understood now, they tried to be peaceful in terms of their demonstrations, in terms of everything that they could do to pressure the government to, to stop this apartheid regime. But nothing was giving. So there was a lot of semi-violent activity that she was responsible for, and that's why she was vilified. The ANC was peaceful up to the time when the famous leaders were taken to Robben Island. There were some incidents where they had engaged in violent activity and do some bombings here and there, but it was not to the scale which the apartheid regime, the mechanism itself, was actually killing black people so they were trying to be peaceful but they were being met with force and they were saying well let's fight force with force so defense yeah defense it was yeah. defense and to me if i look at the scale i'd say they did some damage but it was not at the level that the regime itself did but he was not very instrumental to that so i'm saying outside him being captured what's when winnie mandela and other leaders started the violence actually started accelerating if you really want to know the story of nelson mandela which i feel is sad in a way is that the movement moved on uh, when he was in prison and took a different shape to the one he left. In the sense that I think the deal that he got, his release was imminent. I mean, it was known that he had to come out because, I mean, there was a lot of uh, pressure on the, on, the, on the regime itself. There was economic pressure, there was political pressure, and the, and the world was changing outside. I think there was also some pressures that were coming from what I think were the companies that were involved in putting together this system. Multinationals that benefited immensely from apartheid. Technologically, South Africa became independent. Mm -hmm. With the embargoes, they built their own fighter mm -hmm. helicopters with Russian technology, with assistance from all sorts of places. They've got Denal, which is at the moment is building laser-guided missiles for the Eurospace Agency in Europe. So there was a lot of intellectual property that was also being generated from that and also remember the resource rich country like South Africa a lot of those resources were just being really stripped out of the ground right. just to take out so who better to benefit than uh, companies like Anglo-American companies that even during the embargo period mm -hmm. were operational in apartheid uh, South Africa so coming back to during the release of Nelson Mandela people understand there's going to be a change the companies take a different position they simply go to the apartheid regime and say you gotta stop this now we need a new a new wave so the companies were only changing because the world was changing in your mind that's it because they could not sustain political will globally was pushing them to say right. look they cannot keep this going you know they were getting uh, confronted at cocktail parties exactly <laughs> exactly it's like this thing has got to change right right okay. so what happens they were betting on the, the africans government uh, the national party to keep this apartheid apparatus going and, and they did well they did it efficiently uh -huh. i must say i mean whatever was put in place was working very well if you look at the structures and everything but it was time for them to change the multinationals i think were then saying let's now look at this anc 
as the next governing party. Okay. So they saw the writing on the wall. They basically. saw the writing on the wall and they said, but then we cannot stop our business interest in this country, which is so resource uh-huh. rich, and move, just move out. We got to make sure that we have a smooth transition to the next regime. And the next regime was just obvious that the blacks had to take right. over. Now, they went and cut a deal with the ANC. Now, remember, the ANC has changed and they've infiltrated already the ANC. So they've already got people in there that obviously are working with both sides already. Mandela was oblivious to this, obviously. When he came out, they took him, I think, for a couple of months and there was a lot of negotiations. Before it was originally announced to the world that he's been released, there were deals that were being cut in terms of how things are going to be done. There were players like Chris Honey, if you know him, he was very, 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 very active. He was an activist. He's a black guy who was assassinated during that time when Mandela was, was released. He knew that a deal was being cut. And he was against it? He was against it because it did not go with the, with the interest of the people. Because remember, if this terrible regime was in place, was, was doing all these terrible things, taking away uh, rights from people and not allowing blacks to be economically active in this mm-hmm. resource-rich country, the normal reaction is if they get off power we take everything to ourselves and then we start running things right that's will be the normal thinking of any tribe any human being uh sitting where they've been oppressed and when they get the freedom they'll like to enjoy those things that didn't enjoy before the deal that was cut with mandela and other leadership within the nc was that you have to make sure that there's continuity there's plenty of permutations and, and whatever would happen if they would take arms and, and, and drive the white people out and, and become radical. I think the script was written for him to come out and because of his charisma, because of what he had stood to be, he was a peaceful guy. Remember he said when he was going into jail, he had a speech, if you, if you remember his speech, he wanted an all-inclusive South Africa for white, blacks, anybody. And that is what caught the eye of Martin Nations. Okay, let's release this guy. Let's go with his narrative. Let's, let's go with his for everybody to, for continuity to, to, to move on. And this was in contrast to other activists who may have not. Chris Hani. I see. Chris okay. Hani was an activist who said, we cannot continue. We have to have radical transformation. So he did not want to include the whites, the Afrikaners. He would have included them, but he would have not given them the luxuries that Mandela gave him. Because Mandela was business as usual. Right. He came out and said, okay, let's, let's, let's have an all-inclusive. But it was not all-inclusive because the whites right now, if you look at the stock exchange in mm-hmm. Johannesburg, enjoy the lion's share of the economy. And that transformation has never happened. It was only given to a few selected black ANC leaders who were on the top, okay. who were then... Obviously, when you do that, when you when you put people in position, they will protect that right. that, that that position. So that he went along <clears> with <throat> it. You think he didn't have a choice? He was presented with permutations which were sure that civil war would right. not be good, would not advance the cause of the yeah. nation. It would be just like another African country. That is the story that a lot of people understand but yeah. will not want to believe. Okay, so I mean, I get that because if you look at what happened in Zimbabwe where Mugabe, initially he said he wanted an all-inclusive government, but he obviously wasn't for that. He eventually started expelling whites and basically ruined the economy by kicking out the people that knew how to run things and the farms and all that kind of stuff. Do you think Mandela saw that and thought, okay, we don't want to go that direction? Yeah, he did. I mean, let's let's, let's be practical about things. I mean, we cannot just hand over a country to people who don't know how everything is. Not their fault. They've been been kept down. That's the system. The system, the education system makes sure that they would not be able to run the country. be dependent still on the white people. It's, 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 I understand that. Right. Uh, but I think there was supposed to be some way of a program that was supposed to accelerate black people to a point where they could now be inclusive in the, in, in, in the economy. And that didn't happen because apartheid regime 
was now just changing hands. It's a different colored person that is actually in position. ANC was a very interesting party because they've got a lot of tribes in, in, in South Africa. The Zulus, the Kosas, the Shanganis. The, the Zulus are majority. Zulus are majority. So KZN, which is KwaZulu-Natal, one of the provinces, is the largest province in, in South Africa. And Mandela is not Zulu, right? He's not. He's from the Eastern Cape, which is the Kosas. They were more educated. They're more favored by the white people. So mm -hmm. they're they, the kind of people, they've got charisma. They, okay. Naturally, they're very, very bright people. The Zulus on the other side will be ready to take, take arms. They're, they're quick to, to, to react violently and whatnot. Most of them are not really educated. So that also was a problem at some stage because there was the IFP, which was the Inkata Freedom Party. When in apartheid, when people started feeling, okay, this country is going to go back to the hands of the blacks, the question was which ones. In the beginning, it was it was a problem because there was a lot of mass killings that happened between the IFP Inkata Freedom Party, which was ran run by Butolezi uh, Mungosuti Butolezi. He still is now in, is, a, is an MP right now, and there was huge friction between his party IFP and ANC run by Mandela. And when it was released, that was the first thing they had to deal with. They had to deal with that tension between the two parties, and it was almost like. When you've seen in, in, in gangster movies where you have people wearing certain colors to yeah. represent what they are. And, and that was at that point in the in the townships, it was getting heated. And I think also another mechanism of divide and rule. I think all that was orchestrated in that way. Because when everybody was together against the white regime, tribal lines were never there. They were never established. But when, when this thing, the, the system collapsed, all of a sudden the tribal lines emerged and, and, I, and I don't think people are digital in that way. It was the, the tribal lines there before the, the British came? That would have been back in the 1800s, right? 1800s. Yeah, the, the tribal lines were there, but there was no much interaction because of uh, communication or Dis transportation. Distance. Distance oh, okay. was a problem. If you look at this very sparsely populated. Mm -hmm. But even though, if I look at it right now, this takes something very simple. Uh, there's a lot of interaction. I mean, like, let's take a metropolitan setup like Johannesburg. There's a lot of tribes, many tribes that come there. Do I see an appetite for someone saying, I'll only stick to my type? No, they interact very well. People marry across mm -hmm. tribes. So, so there's no fundamental tribal issue. Yeah. I think people use that as a mechanism to divide and rule. So the majority of people get along? Get along. Okay. But there's these little incidences that happen when they're lighting the, for example, the, the Zimbabwean immigrants on fire. Those are just isolated incidences? So I put it very simple. It still comes back to resources. The townships that I talked about initially, where the blacks were put into townships to provide labor in, into the cities, those were pretty much occupied by the South Africans. Now, South Africa was open after the apartheid. It was open to Southern Africa in terms of uh, job opportunities, and, and, and it is still. That's why I also migrated myself to South Africa. Still the best destination if you want to start a career and want to, you want to better your life. In that hemisphere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now what happened is that there was a lot of migrants, migrants from outside South Africa coming into, into South Africa. And those townships offered low-cost housing. So what would happen is that the immigrants would come in and establish themselves in these local communities, right? Mm. But because when you're coming into a country and you're trying hard and you're hustling for your life, you become innovative. So most of these immigrants started opening up uh, small tuck shops mm -hmm. where they would provide convenience stores. And they became very... Um, I can I put really successful in this and it was all based on space and and the, the fact that these people are coming into our, our territory and they're becoming so successful yeah. 
in front of our faces. It didn't, it didn't work for them. So, it's our country. So yeah. It's our country, exactly. But then that, to me, also started showing some issues around what the government was failing. It was failing to put their people in a position of actually being economically active because those opportunities are there. If a foreigner is coming in from outside, identifying an opportunity that in front of your face and making it a success, that means you are not trained to do that. Oppression is still within mm. the black people. So that is what the xenophobic attack. So when you see it on TV, mm. I mean, media will exaggerate it. Sure. Like people are hacking, whatever, they're killing them, they're burning them. That's just criminal elements. So it goes back, <laughs> we were talking earlier off the recording about you were asking me about how Americans feel about Mexicans, and I, and I was telling you, the only people I've ever heard badmouth Mexicans stealing our jobs, so to speak, are people who are in government assistance and don't even try to get a job in the first place. So they have to blame somebody for their laziness or yeah. lack of initiative or something. Soviet Union and its relationship with South Africa. The Soviet Union had a lot of influence on the leaders that led the ANC because most of them were exiled there in Russian states, mm-hmm. they were educated there, so most probably indoctrinated with, yeah. with, with those ideologies. And for folks listening who don't pay attention to history, the, the MO of the Soviets was to find an area that was having trouble that, yes. and they would exploit these problems yes. for their own. Benefit. benefit or for the spread of the communism. The Soviet Union held out a helping hand. They had an agenda. Their agenda was, was, was obviously way into the future because I'll tell you why right now. I'll, I'll go to the future of okay. the past. Most of the leaders that are ruling right now have got Soviet education. The NC has got splinter parties inside. Not splinter, they've got some parties like the Communist Party. There's a, okay. there's a whole Communist Party and which is linked to the labor unions. Mm. And, and that is huge in South Africa, and it pulls a lot of influence within the ANC. So communism is alive in, within the ANC. It's alive within most of the leaders' thinking. However, they had to balance this. Remember there was a deal that was cut with the multinationals, like you've got to keep this under wraps. If you want things to continue, with the country to progress, you've got to make sure that you also keep this communism in check and yeah. so they kind of formed a bit of a like a crony communism exactly okay that's what is in play at the moment now remember if you've got a debt you got to pay a debt right so i think that there was an agreement with the russians or the soviet or wherever it was that that was in power then around how they would also benefit from this resource rich country ah yes that's right so at the moment uh south africa as i said has got coal deposits and uranium deposits so we generate electricity quite well, efficiently. And electricity has been targeted as one of the most important areas to develop for, for growth going forward because they want to industrialize the country and whatnot. What has come to play is that uh, we've got nuclear energy. We've got one nuclear plant in South Africa. The Russians have come out and said, we need to build up your next nuclear program. This is recent. This is, this is a bone of contention. If you go and research and see what has happened, mm-hmm. is that the current president is pushing hard mm-hmm. to get the Russians in to build up 99.6 gigawatts of electricity capacity mm-hmm. through nuclear generation. And it's gonna cost the country one trillion rand. If I put it in perspective, you just divide by 10, that's you get the, do- the dollar equivalent. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money. That's over a hundred billion dollars, which the Russians want to be involved in. And now this is the debt being paid back to the Soviet, to the Soviet, to the Russians. So you can see how it works out. Is, and this is how they're coming back 
as communists into a country which they invested by making sure that they give this helping hand to the leaders with who they knew at one stage would become the leaders of that country. Maybe you don't know this, but do you think any, whether it be African or someone in the African National Congress was seeing what making a deal with the Soviets would lead to, for example, in Uganda with Idi Amin, Angola with mass killings. Did anyone say, like, hey, maybe we shouldn't deal with these guys? Or do you think they just didn't have a choice? Well, the Soviets are clear in the sense that, obviously, they had to dangle a carrot in front of these guys. And we've got a problem in Africa, is that these parties or these individuals that uh, are involved in revolutionary activity, they have a sense of entitlement. So it would be, I went through this hardship, therefore i got to get paid, right? So I think the Soviets would then say, well, this is what's in for you. And any human being, and, and I know that some of them are truly, they've got integrity and whatnot, but some of them that have been put across, if you look at even the way elections are run in some of these African countries, how some of these leaders are elected, it's rigged. Someone positions a leader. They will position a leader where they can actually work their agenda through that leader. And I didn't see it coming. The current president, Jacob Zuma, the most corrupt ever. He's got 700 cases of corruption against him, but he still survives up to today. He's been protected by a third force, which everyone cannot understand because they go and touch different points where now he's the one who's pushing this nuclear deal. Now, he was educated in the Soviet Union? Yes. Wow. I think about when I lived in China that when I found out, like, most of the communist leadership were educated in the Soviet Union even before they had fallen to communism. The Soviets were looking way far ahead. Yes. So now at the moment they're talking about radical economic transformation. It's code for communism. And it's a way of when you create some chaos mm-hmm. and then you're trying to push another agenda. Yeah, you back. say yeah, you create the problem and then you say I'm the solution. I'm the solution, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so so they do so, that here all the time. Exactly. So now there's this big problem that we got to deal with in South Africa and it's coming from our history and it's now in our future where we need to deal with it and I think what other countries have done uh, is that they've cut out that cancer which is the revolutionary uh, leaders or the parties that came in and claimed or should I say liberated the country and had a sense of entitlement mm-hmm. like ZANU PF in, in Zimbabwe where now okay the time is done you liberated the country it's over Let, let's run the country so you get a new breed of leaders who are coming in who are more educated, who are young, who, who understand what it is to run a country. We see that happening in Kenya, we see that happening in Tanzania, we see that happening in Uganda. Those countries have become, to my opinion, true democracies because now there is no party that is there because they liberated the country. It's just simply people have got a choice based on what they see or what a leader can do for them going forward. And to end on a lighter note, we bring back Mr. Uncle Jim to talk about one of his brushes with African fame. When we were in Swaziland, I saw the king of Swaziland two different times. How was that? Well, it was interesting. Up, up close and personal one day, he asked to take a tour of our Bible college in Swaziland. Really? And so we went over to the Bible college that day to to see him. And uh-huh. so I was as close to him as I am to you right now, just wow. right he, he walked past us on the sidewalk, and then he went in and they had a little ceremony. He gave a little speech. Uh-huh. Was he Christian? Well, he would probably say that he is, uh-huh. but uh, some of his practices uh-huh. we frown on, like having 12 wives and stuff like that. <laughs> Now, 
Okay, that's all for now. If you missed the back in the day days, you might check out not only earlier episodes of A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill, but also songs from the 1980s Roller Ring Dumpster and the role-playing game we set in the 80s and recorded, Legend of the Like Totally Epic Journey Quest. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. I'm on the